0: I don't like my mind right now Stacking up problems that are so unnecessary Wish that I could slow things down I want to let go, but discomfort comfort in the panic And I drive myself crazy Thinking everything's about me Yeah, I drive myself crazy Cause I can't escape the gravity Why is everything so heavy? Holding on to so much more than I can carry. I keep dragging around what's bringing me down. If I just let go, I'd be set free. Holding on. Why is everything so heavy? You say that I'm paranoid, but I'm pretty sure the fight is out to get me. It's not like I made the choice So let my mind stay so fucking messy I know I'm not the center of the human first But you keep spinning around me just the same I know I'm not the center of the human But you keep spinning around me just the same
1: Hey everyone,
0: uh, this is Chris from CGN and uh, we're going to have a little bit different kind of uh, podcast today. Um, I've kind of been off radar for the past week or two and a lot of the fans from Arkham Beauties have PM'd me personally and PM Arkham Beauties and Chastity to see what's going on and of course I play Discount Deadpool um, on the Arkham Beauties live stream Wednesday nights. Um So just to let everyone know, this is the first audio or slash podcast address that I've ever just done myself without a co-host. So hopefully it's not too bad and it's uh, not too choppy. But from here, um, I just kind of want to let everybody know what's been going on in my life. And in a way, I kind of want to make this a tribute to somebody who uh, has helped me through a lot of things. And uh, that person I'm talking about is Chester Bennington of Linkin Park. And, uh, you know, as we all know, about a week and a half ago, Chester took his life, Uh, committed suicide, he hung himself. Um, So what I'm going to be doing on this podcast today is speaking a little bit about Chester and how he helped me and kind of opening up to everybody, you know, all the fans out there, all my friends, everybody who listens and burying my soul and just kind of letting you know what's going on in my life. I'm going to spare a lot of the details because I don't want to have to pull anyone else down to raise myself up, and I don't want to single anybody out specifically uh, who may or may not have contributed to some of the things going on in the world. So to start, I, I just want to kind of talk a little bit about Chester Bennington and Lincoln Park. And I remember when Lincoln Park first came out. Um, I personally have struggled with depression a lot of my life. And, uh, you know, it was actually, I believe it was right after high school. I had a very uh, rough time in high school. I had just broken up with a high school sweetheart. And my head wasn't in a very good place. I was depressed. Yes, I had suicidal thoughts. And I remember my friend Kevin and Kevin handing me a CD and saying, "You know, hey, look, you should really you know, listen to this. This CD's awesome. This band called Lincoln Park." And uh, you know, I I was like, "Yeah, I'll listen to it." You know, I didn't really care. Um, well, about two weeks later, you know, I'm driving around in my car and you know my CD player. I popped it in, and after my first listen of Hybrid Theory, I uh, fell in love with the band. Um, their lyrics, their words, the emotion, the passion that was put in their music, I didn't feel like it was just another, you know, scripted, cookie-cutter band. Uh, what we got from Chester was raw emotion in his vocals. Uh, something I could relate to. I could tell it was somebody who was very empathic in a lot of pain, and that's exactly how I felt. Uh, so, going throughout my life and, you know, in the midst of this whole story I'm about to open up and share with you guys, if I could pick one band um, who was very influential and helped me through things and kept my head above water, it would be Linkin Park, which is scary because both Chester and I have battled the same demons throughout our life, and unknowingly by his music, his words, his, his passion, and his, his lyrics and his singing, the man was able to unknowingly help me battle and defeat the demons. That he ultimately came to in the end, which is pretty sad when you think about it. Um, you know, I'm very, very lucky to have the people in my life that I have to be able to listen to Chester's music and have it make me feel like I was not alone, and still till this day makes me feel like I'm not alone. Uh, you know, it's just sad because I wish, you know, I wish I could give back and I wish I could have helped him the way he helped me. Uh, But instead, what I try to do is I try to help other people who might be having suicidal thoughts or struggle with depression, Uh, substance abuse, alcoholism. um, All those things kind of fall under the same umbrella. Uh, But before I get started on, you know, how Chester really helped me and and some of the things I went through in life that, you know, I can relate to Chester with, um, I'm going to tell a very heartwarming story about Chester And I forget what year it was. It was right before they got huge, right before Lincoln Park got huge. But I actually had the opportunity to meet Chester Bennington uh, at an HF Festival concert. And one thing I remember about when I met Chester was I was nervous as hell. Um, I was able to go backstage. My buddy had got me a backstage pass. I went backstage and... You know, I was in awe. I was I was afraid to talk. I was you know kind of shaking a little bit, and Chester came up to me and gave me a handshake, and he just looked at me and he was like, "Hey man, how, how you doing? You gonna hang out with us today?" And I was like, "Yeah, sure." Uh, so we we had a few drinks and sat there and BS'd and um, one of the cool things about Chester was, and there weren't many people backstage. There was maybe about ten, and uh, Chester actually spent a lot of time talking with me. Um, I I hate it, but I can't remember all of the conversation we had. But one thing I can tell you is looking back and walking away from that situation after I met Chester, um, the biggest thing that struck me about him is he was a rock star. He was there. He was on stage. He was performing. He had a million fans screaming at him. But when he sat down and he talked to me, it was as if I was the rock star. He wanted to know about me. And of course, because my nervousness, I didn't, and my anxiety, I didn't have, like, a lot of questions to ask him because he was asking me so much. Hey, man, do you sing? What kind of stuff do you sing? Um, And it was like he was interviewing me. He was somebody who really cared about people. When I used the word empathic earlier, one thing I think a lot of people need to realize is there are empathic people out there, people who feel more, who can sense what's going on in other people around them. And carry it with them. And a lot of times those people are in a great deal of pain themselves. But with Chester, <clears throat> Chester knowing, you know, what we know now, obviously has been fighting demons and been in a great deal of pain. And I'm sorry, I might get choked up a little bit of, you know, during this podcast, but just bear with me, um, has been in a great deal of pain throughout his life. He's He's suffered. Uh, that's something many people, not just myself that are listening to this can relate to, but he also wanted to heal others. And I can tell you I've met I've met a lot of rock stars. I've been fortunate enough to sneak backstage or get backstage passes. And the one person who I walked away from feeling better about myself was Chester Bennington. Because the guy cared and he wanted to know about me. It wasn't like a sappy sad conversation. Anybody who met Chester knows he was very animated when he spoke. He was very uplifting. He was a hard person to feel sad about. And that's something I can relate to, too, because, you know, when I get stuck in my head and I'm alone and I'm depressed or I'm upset, I'm I'm not that happy person that people normally see. I do a lot of cosplay. I sing. Um, and when I'm out, you know, I'm having a good time or even when I'm doing the podcast or I'm socializing, what people don't understand is for people like myself and Chester and anybody that struggles with depression, PTSD, it's pretty hard to put yourself in that position because some days you just do not want to get out of bed. You don't want to talk to anybody. One of the big, uh, symptoms of depression and PTSD is isolation, um, But what what I will say is part of being empathic is when you're out in a social situation and you're taking in everyone's feelings and emotions around you, sometimes it can have the reverse effect. Instead of dragging you down, it pushes you up. And it causes you to talk to people and want to know, hey, you know, this person, I can tell they feel like I do. You know, maybe I can cheer them up. Maybe I can help them. Maybe they can help me. And it's kind of an unspoken bond at that point. The other person that you're speaking to may not even know that you're sensing this in them. But with Chester, I, you know, I remember uh, the band. The rest of the band was making fun of us because at that time I had blonde hair and Chester had blonde hair. And uh, I remember the first thing he said to me was, "Oh, cool hair! It's like mine." And the rest of the guys in the band started cracking up. Um, <clears throat> but you know, Chester, he uh, he definitely went out of his way, and it wasn't just me that he was sitting there talking to. He spent about 10 minutes just talking to me, asked me about my singing, where I lived, what was going on in my life, Um, talked about my ex-girlfriend. He did that not just with me, but he did it to everybody. I remember when he was finished talking to me, a girl came up and she was crying and you could tell she was somebody who, you know, was finding herself in life. Um, Obviously somebody that struggled with a lot of pain emotionally. And he sat down on the couch with her, had her laughing, but that's the kind of persona and just impact Chester Bennington had on people. Um, And like I said, I know from firsthand experience, like, you know, when you see me on the live stream as Discount Deadpool, or you hear me on a podcast, or I'm out hosting an event on the microphone, it's not easy. It is not easy. I've got to... Push myself to go out there and do that, so that I'm not locked up in my room and I'm not isolated. But you know, we're going to talk a little bit about that, about more about that later. Um, and honestly, that leads me into my story because I know, you know, the past week and a half, two weeks, I've had people messaging me and messaging Arkham Beauties, ...and mess- messaging Chastity, asking, you know, what what happened to Discount Deadpool? What happened to Chris? And it's exactly what we were just talking about, okay? Um, I, number one, found out about Chester taking his life, and that affected me. Number two, I have two very bad custody battles that have been raging on for the past 10 years in my life. And number three, I had some other things happen financially that kind of set me back a little bit and put my head in a bad place, and what I did is I collected myself, I did isolate, uh, kind of came out of the spotlight for a while, took a step back, and got my head in the right place. <clears throat> now, that may sound like it was an easy task to do, but it's not, okay? Uh, just to share with everyone, I have been diagnosed with CT, P- C- PTSD. And CPTSD is a little bit different than PTSD. And the best way I can explain it is PTSD, like when a soldier comes home from war. The soldier is no longer in a combat environment and is experiencing the backlash, the blowback from the trauma that that person lived through. CPTSD would be like a soldier who's out in combat And has not come home. He's still alive, trapped in that combat situation, trapped in the trauma. So that's the difference between CPTSD and PTSD. CPTSD is the living, like you're still in the traumatic experience. PTSD is what you have after the traumatic experience. And of course, you know, you could probably tell just by, you know, the way this podcast is going and everything I'm explaining now. Yes, I've actually... You know, spent a lot of time talking to therapists and counselors and uh, psychiatrists. And, you know, it's really embarrassing for me to admit that. But I think people need to know because when you see me out in public and I'm having a good time or I'm singing or I'm doing a podcast or I'm doing a live stream, sometimes that's me wearing a smile and looking at Chester, okay? And I know how hard it is for me. He had to wear that smile a lot, a lot. And it's not easy to wear that smile. Some days, you know, I I just read an article before I started this podcast about Chester. Just some days he said he didn't want to get out of bed. Um, The most brilliant quote I've heard in an interview by him recently was when he was talking about keeping active, doing stuff. Because if he didn't do stuff, he didn't distract himself. He didn't work on music or a project. He got trapped inside his head. And the best way he described that was you know, it's a bad neighborhood that I shouldn't be walking alone in up there. Stop and think about that for a second. You know, it's nobody expected Chester to do what he did. I mean, my God, he left behind six kids, an ex wife, a wife. Um, The man obviously was in pain. And we don't see that pain all the time, every day, in the people that we socialize with. But we need to keep in mind, it could be there. Okay? That person could be hurting. And I'm very good at hiding it, and obviously Chester was too. And I'm pretty sure this podcast will come as a huge surprise to a lot of you, because you don't know me personally. And I keep my cards close to my chest. There's only a handful of people that you know, really know what I've been through, the pain I've gone through. And, you know, it seems like Chester was the same way. His band knew, his family knew. Um, But I can tell you right now, after hearing about Chester taking his life, I, I was in shock. And honestly, you know, with my, much of my situation, much of my mental health problems are due to the custody battles I went through. Um, I can tell you it's one of the hardest things you'll ever experience in life, having children and having them taken from you for no good reason. Um, The family law courts, the lawyers, it's all a big scheme, okay? Their goal is to basically give one person, one parent, uh, full custody so the state can charge child support to the other parent. Um, and I don't know if anybody knows, but it is a business, uh, the state for every three dollars of child support that the state collects from a non-custodial parent, they get reimbursed a dollar for by the federal government. So they're making money off of it. It's a business, uh, but we're not going to get into all that. It's, uh, you know, I'm going to try to stay away from specifics. But, uh, you know, as far as Chester, one thing that I don't think a lot of people know about Chester is he went through a very, very, very expensive divorce. A divorce that kept him from his kids. Uh, Of course, the emotional heartache of losing somebody you care about as well as your children can be devastating. And at one point, Chester, one of the biggest rock stars of our generation, was living in a small apartment. Okay? Think about that. The man was number one on Billboard charts. Um, He was had how many successful CDs, how many fans, selling out concerts, so many sellouts that they had to create other nights in specific venues for shows because the first two shows sold out, and the man's living in a small apartment, which is an upgrade because at one point he was living in his car. Um, but once again you know I kind of the reason why I want to talk about myself is not to let my demons out but I kind of owe it to my fans the people who have messaged asking where I'm at Um, I want to thank you guys for checking in I also am very um, flattered I actually have had a lot of requests for autographs which is something I've never even fathomed having in my entire life and you know I want you to know know, I, I appreciate that more than you know because sometimes I get down on myself and you know it's uh it's just so surreal that people you know are looking up to me so my I want to thank everybody who's supported me and asked about me and you know another reason why I'm doing this it's not just to get my stuff out there but I'm hoping that maybe a Chester Bennington will listen to this maybe one of our fans will listen to this or maybe somebody will you know just hey what's this podcast and um give it a listen and it'll help them. Maybe a Lincoln Park fan. But uh, we're gonna get into some pretty dark conversation and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna talk about uh, bad mental health, being in that bad neighborhood, being stuck in your head. And hopefully my story will help a lot of you find distractions and coping mechanisms because let me tell you right now, you can go to therapy, you can go to a counselor, you can go to a psychiatrist. And talking, don't get me wrong, talking does help. Talking does help. And honestly, if you're struggling with some sort of pain, PTSD, having suicidal thoughts, seek PTSD, you need to talk to somebody, even if it's just for an hour a week, because it does help. But the other part of that, the other side of that is a lot of times the person you talk to wants to prescribe you medications. And I'm not saying don't take the medications, but weigh very carefully what you are putting into your body. Because when you're dealing with a fragile state of mind and you start taking a medication that physically changes the chemicals within your brain, if you're not following things to the T and have a strong support group around you, there is a good chance that you could fall into trouble. Uh, One of the rumors, and let me stress, this is a rumor going around about Chris Cornell is that he took it and when Chris Cornell hung himself, one of the last things he said to his wife was, "I'm going to double up on the Adderall today." Uh, what that tells me, and I'm not being judgmental, but there's there's a good chance that Chester's medication played into um, him making the decision he made as well. But Once again, you know, I encourage anybody who's in a bad situation to get help, um, reach out, talk to people, go to a counselor, go to a therapist, go to a psychiatrist. Let your friends and family know. If you don't have friends and family, you need to make new friends and you need to make a new family because I know firsthand how hard it is to sit and struggle and deal with depression, pain, loss, suffering, and want to sit there and have thoughts of taking your own life. And you know, one thing I can say, the biggest thing that confuses me about Chester taking his was, as many times as I felt like giving up, I felt like giving in. I've actually had a plan. I've thought about suicide. The only thing that kept me from doing that was my children. The thought of, what would I put them through? you know how would they deal with this so that tells me you know if i were in that place chester was probably in that place a long time ago and at a certain point things do become overwhelming now fortunately my schedule isn't as hectic as chester's is so i'm able to get a therapy i'm able to get a psychiatrist appointments i'm not so sure that chester had that luxury with his busy lifestyle and being pulled 50 different directions I just I I don't know if if he had that so um yeah so we're gonna kind of get into my story and you know like I said this isn't all about me this is more so people anybody listening if this podcast helps one person out there it pays off um, but we're gonna get into my story and why I could relate to Chester and you know I'm gonna talk about how Chester's lyrics helped me throughout it. How his singing, his passion helped me. I'm gonna talk about ways to cope. Um, and, like I said, hopefully it helps someone. So with me, the past 10 years of my life have just been utter hell. A lot of pain, a lot of suffering. A lot of nights, laying in bed, crying, uh, being upset, uh, broken. And a lot of it I've gone through alone up until the past. year, Ten years ago, my son was born. And for anybody that doesn't have kids yet, I can tell you the first time you stand there and hold that life you created in your arms and just look in those little eyes and have them staring back at you, your life changes. You know, prior to having my son, I would go out, I'd bands, I'd sing, I'd party. You know, I, was, I lived life like a rockstar. But the moment my son was born, like I knew my life was different. Like there was, I was a dad. I was a father then. And that was, and is still the most important thing in the world to me. Um, But like I said, for those of you who don't have kids, and even if you do have kids, I remember just holding him. And the first few seconds we, you know, he had his eyes open, of course he can't see yet, Um, just looked in each other's eyes. And I knew... this is what's going to keep me going. This is what's going to save me because I was already on a dangerous path with drinking and partying and just uh, just dealing with pain and suffering from previous relationships and life in general and finding myself as a young adult. um, Just staring in his eyes like I knew I had another reason to live. Um, And at the time, I, I actually was... Doing. I was very successful. I was working for Best Buy, um, and I was making close to 60000 dollars a year. Um, I ran the most successful Geek Squad on the East Coast. Uh, I was flown out to corporate and asked how I did it. Um, I was a much different person than I than I am now. I was very materialistic. I was very shallow. I was very promiscuous. I loved attention. That you know, when I went out and sang, you know, I, I, I loved it. I loved living life like a rock star. But when my son was born, that stopped. Um, I became a daddy. And I went from singing in bars and drinking all night and having the nicest things to sitting at home, holding my son, feeding him a bottle and spending time with him. And the power that a child when a child's born can have over you is amazing because there wasn't once where I said, Oh, I'd rather be out doing this or I miss this. No. My my little world was with my son. And uh my significant other at the time's um daughter, I was you know, helping raise her as well. Um that became my world, my son and her daughter. And during the time Right out shortly after he was born, I've struggled with hearing problems throughout my entire life. Uh, at one point, I was 70% deaf and reading lips, and nobody knew. I've had multiple reconstructive ear surgeries. I had something called a cholesteatoma, um, which is almost like a little cancer that's in your ear and in your head that I had to have removed on several occasions. And these surgeries weren't little surgeries. They actually cut behind your ear and pull your ear back, go in, and uh, one of the cholesteatomas had actually eaten through my skull, and I just went to my brain. So it was very serious. It was life-threatening. And, you know, I was, in a way, fortunate enough to have one of the surgeries after my son was born. And I went out on short-term leave from Best Buy, where I was working. And honestly, I got to stay home every day. I mean, I was in pain, yes, but I got to stay home every day. And pretty much for the first nine months of my son's life, I was with him every second. Um, I'd wake him up, I'd change him, I'd feed him, play with him, try to make him laugh. Of course, when he was a little tiny baby, all you can do is sit there and hold him. And it actually got to the point where I'd spent so much time with him, you know, I think his mother got a little upset because, you know, he would cry if I wasn't holding him. But it was my son and I developed a very strong bond early. And uh, eventually I ended up going back to work. And once again, I'm not going not gonna to go into the details of, you know, why things ended. Um, I'm not going to cast blame on anybody or demonize anybody in these stories. But all I'm going to do is share my perspective. Um, but when I went back to work, I had a hard time dealing with being without my son. And... Um I eventually um started to lose focus at work. Um I started to mess up. Uh, I was promoted. I actually became a manager at one point and it was hard for me just to go to work every day because I was so worried about my son. My son, we were afraid he had some health problems. Um to make a long story short, You know, in the end, my uh, son's mother and I ended up splitting up and it was not pretty. It was not a, hey, you know, we're going to, we're going to, you know, sit down and cordially work this out. Um, It was very over the top. And I remember just going home to the apartment we were living in at one point. And just sitting down on the floor, which the apartment was pretty much empty, it was cleaned out, and crying my eyes out. Um, I went about nine or ten months without seeing my son. Um, not because I didn't want to, but because I wasn't being allowed to. Um, and once again, like I said, we, I don't want anybody to listen to this and, and demonize any of the people I talk about, okay? This is water under the bridge. It's, you know something that happened and you know i was in a lot of pain obviously everybody in this situation is in a lot of pain and people make bad decisions when they're in pain they're not thinking clearly Uh, motion can be a huge plus in your life or can be a huge minus um but i basically was left high and dry i i lost everything i owned um I wasn't seeing my son for, like I said, for like nine months. I was suicidal. Um, I started drinking heavily again to the point where just to sleep, I would have to drink a bottle of Jameson a night. I ended up moving in with my grandmother and she was going downhill. She was, the time was about probably like 90, 90 years old, maybe 92 years old. Um, So I was helping take care of her. I was alone all the time, I remember at one point there was just a pattern of, I ended up leaving Best Buy because I just, I couldn't hack it anymore, I couldn't, you know, one of the things I told Best Buy is I can't perform on the level that I was performing on before, so I need to, you know, I need to find a new job, I started working at PetSmart as a manager, um, and anybody who works retail knows the hours can be ludicrous. Six, seven days a week sometimes. Uh, they tell you not to, but when you're a manager, you pretty much you have to work off the clock if you want to keep your job. And they pay you just enough to keep you there. Um, best Buy, I can say, paid me very well. I don't think they pay as well anymore. PetSmart didn't pay the best, but uh, part of the reason why I took the job at PetSmart was because I would be able to see my son on the weekends. Where um, Best Buy, that would not be an option. I would be at work every weekend, all weekend. So I'm um, kind of getting off track here. But, you know, it was a very, very hard time for me. You know, my grandmother was falling. I'd have to help her up. Uh, there's a lot of nights I'd go into the bathroom and, you know, she – there were some accidents in the bathroom and I'd have to clean them up. Um, and I was working – 45 to 50 hours every week under this pressure of not seeing my son. I'd, I'd gotten into a cycle where I'd go to work at 4 a.m. I'd get home around 6 p.m. I wouldn't even eat dinner. I'd just go get in bed and sleep until I had to go to work the next day. My days off, I would sleep pretty much the entire time. Um, you know, I'd get up and check on my grandmother. I'd you know all I did was sleep though I did not want to get out of bed um and I was really down I was really in a lot of pain I was a broken person um and I you know started eventually <clears throat> hanging out with some of the people I worked with and that's how I ended up meeting my daughter's mother and I really had no business being in a relationship at that point in my life because I was just so shattered and broken, but I found comfort in her. Um, I felt like she could relate to me. Um, I felt like somebody was there, I wasn't alone. And of course, you know, one thing led to another and I ended up, you know, we ended up pregnant. And during the pregnancy, of course, I was going through the custody battle for my son, which was very nerve-wracking. And my daughter's mom and I moved out into an apartment, and, you know, we, uh, we were making it, you know. We, we, I hadn't had child support coming out of my paychecks for my son yet. Um, I was trying to create a family environment, try to get back what I felt like I had lost And everything was going good for a long while. But once I went to court for my son, um, things kind of took a turn there. Because what ended up happening is my son's mother moved about an hour and a half away. Um, And we went into court. The judge ended up um, giving her full custody. And I... Basically would be able to see him three weekends a month, but my child support was uh, set at 1170 a month, $1,170. Um, that $1,170 is, is a lot. And eventually I had to have a conversation with my daughter's mom and say, look, you know, the money I've been getting, you know, is my paychecks are essentially going to be cut in half at this point. We need to figure something out, and right. of course that caused a lot of problems between my daughter's mother and I. And the worst part was it was nothing I could I could control. Here I just lost my son, um, having to deal with you know I'm only going to see him three weekends a month, and then being told you know I have to pay a in child support, I mean, you would think for that amount of money, I'm some kind of monster, like I was a drug addict or an alcoholic or verbally abusive or physically abusive. No, I didn't even have as much as a speeding ticket to my name. So when that coordinator came through, of course, I I was upset. I was, you know, suicidal. Um... And when I say suicidal, suicidal doesn't mean like you're trying to kill yourself. It's you're having dark thoughts. You're asking yourself, maybe this world's just better off without me. Maybe these kids will have a better life life without me. Um, And it's also, I I can't take any more pain. So um, my daughter's mom and I ended up going to couples therapy, um, and it, it, for whatever reason, did not work out. And once again, I found myself inside of another custody battle for my daughter. And I was getting my son three weekends a month. Uh, of course, I'm sparing a lot of very, very traumatic details that occurred in between. Nothing with violence, nothing with screaming and yelling. Just what I had to go through just to see my kids um, was hell. It was it was the most painful thing I've ever had to deal with in my life. Showing up, being told you can see your son or your daughter at this time, showing up, and then they're not there. And then I've got to go home and wonder what's going to happen in court. And it's just a lot to carry. Um, and you know, my daughter. One of the big things was when she was born, I had pneumonia, and. Luckily, I was allowed in the room, but I didn't get to hold my daughter when she first came out. And, uh, you know, I remember the first time, you know, I I didn't see my daughter for about a year either. It seems to be, you know, when these things happen, one of the parents takes the kid from the other parent, regardless of whether it's, um, you know, a bad situation or a good situation. The reason why this happens isn't because the parent who does it is a bad parent. It's because the way the system is set up and lawyers. And I will mention one name on this podcast, Mr. Amar Wiseman. Um, What attorneys like to do is they like to tell their client to protect themselves. And oftentimes in protecting themselves, um, that means withholding the child from the other parent. Now, the reason why an attorney does that is because, like Mr. Amar Wiseman, wanted his client to win. Uh, he didn't care about my daughter. He did not care about my daughter's mom. He doesn't care about me. The only thing that man cares about is making money, okay? And he's ensured he is going to make money if he tells a parent who's going through a divorce or a custody battle, you withhold that child because it ensures he's going to get paid. So, um, lawyer, I'm, I'm talking about douchebag. No problem throwing his name out there. Um, I'll leave it at that. But at the same time, you know, I ended up going to court for my daughter, and you know, I hadn't seen my daughter for a year. I was dealing things with things pretty well. Uh, I was, because I had my son on the weekends, and that was always uplifting, um, but I had, I ended up leaving PetSmart, I got a job at an oil terminal, um, uh, made some really, really good friends, and, um, through the custody battle, uh, I met probably one of the most compassionate, influential people in my life, and, This was an ex-girlfriend of mine, and the girl treated me like gold, was head over heels in love with me, beautiful girl, had a great job, had two beautiful kids, um, and she supported me through my custody battle with my daughter. And when I say support, it wasn't just, you know, I love you, everything's okay. This girl, because financially I was – at that point, living off of about $700 every two weeks. This girl ended up buying an apartment for us, um, bought me food, bought me clothes, um, paid the electric bill, paid the cable bill, always brought me like little presents, little surprises home, um, after she got off work. And, uh, I'd probably say the most wonderful person I've ever met in my life. And, you know, I remember when I ended up uh, going to the, the court day for my daughter and finding out, you know, I wasn't going to get custody of her. I was only going to see her every other weekend. I was shattered. I was destroyed. I felt like giving up in life. Uh, but this girl picked me up and just made me feel like the most important person in the world on a level that no one else ever could or has in my entire life. Um, And at that point, I, you know, I didn't appreciate it as much as I should have. I didn't uh, realize what I had. I was too blinded by all the pain and suffering. Um... I also was having ear problems again. I was in a lot of pain physically from my ear. And uh, I, I was so upset about my custody battle for my daughter, I ended up – I represented myself in court of appeals, um, which my case was accepted. And if anybody knows about court of appeals, court of special appeals, 3% of the cases get accepted. So I did a damn good job representing myself. I taught myself family law. Um, This girl stood by my side the whole time. I remember one night my friend Dave uh, and my girlfriend and I, my ex-girlfriend and I, probably stayed up for about 15 hours uh, creating my brief that I was submitting to the Court of Special Appeals. And that girl, she sat there, just sat there by my side and held my hand and massaged my back and gave me all of herself, dedicated 100% of herself to me. And I was so focused on my daughter and after the custody battle, losing her and getting the response back from court of appeals uh, that was bad and not in my favor. I was so focused on the bad things in my life that I neglected the person who was keeping me above water. I was treading water at that point. And I neglected her. And what ended up happening was she, uh, she ended up cheating on me. And I don't blame her. I do not blame her at all. I was, I was broken. I didn't love myself. The only time I was happy is when I had my kids. But looking back now, I, I, I wish I, I would have appreciated her much more. And she, you know, of course cheated on me. And when I found out she cheated on me, I fell apart. I uh, refused to talk to her. I ended things. She still wanted to talk to me. And, and looking back now, I think it was a one-time thing. It was an outlet for her. It was a, uh, it was a way for her to get away. And, you know, I, I wasn't, I was isolating. I was, I, I, I wasn't treating her right. I was not returning the love she was giving me. And at that point, I didn't talk to her again for about four or five years. I refused to talk to her. Um, I looked at, you know, I've been, had a lot of women cheat on me in my life. And the emotional pain that comes with that and dealing with losing your kids, you just can't imagine what kind of frame of mind that puts you in. Um, after I found out she was cheating on me, I think there was a period of three months where I just did not get out of bed. The only time I got out of bed was to work or be with my kids. Um, and I honestly, I never moved on from it. I never recovered from it. And part of the reason why I didn't is the guilt that I I lost her. I caused that. Okay. Yes, she made the decision to cheat, but at the same time, and I never, never want anybody to use this as an excuse to cheat on somebody else, but you need to remember when you're in a relationship, things need to go both ways. Um, this girl was great with my kids. My daughter loved her. Uh, always bought my daughter, my little ponies, my son treated him like gold. Um, but You know, we're going to get back to her a little bit later in the story. Needless to say, like, after that situation, I picked up and moved on. It was very hard, and I realized, you know, I was carrying the weight of the world on my shoulders with my my son, my daughter, um, working. I worked a night job, 6 p.m., 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. So I would sleep during the day, work at night, and work was... Just a horrible place. I'm not saying it was a bad job, but there were some employees there that, and I'll just be honest about it, would bully myself and some of the other employees. And I'm not saying like hit us and stuff like that, but would go out of their way to get us in trouble with our boss. And, you know, it was a very stressful, difficult situation. One gentleman ended up uh, quitting because of it. Um, It was hard to handle what I was handling going on in my life with my ex cheating on me and not seeing my children. And, um, at, at that point, this is, you know, when my daughter's custody battle, when, you know, her mother got full custody, I was actually for the past seven years of my life have lived off $300 every two weeks, $300 every two weeks. And not once did I ever not come through for, my son or my daughter on birthday or Christmas or Easter. Um, not once did I ever call their mothers and say, I don't have gas money to come, come pick them up. Um, I relied heavily on my mother and father to financially fill in the pieces when I did run short on money. There were many nights I slept in my car just so that I would be able to go to work the next day. Um, and, and Very traumatizing, and and going back to Chester Bennington, you know, you you don't know what that's like to have to sleep, you know, live in your car, to be homeless, not because you, you know, you you don't have a house, but because financially you've been raped, and not a lot of people knew that about Chester Bennington. You know, he, at, at some point, he went through a divorce that just completely took everything from him. And that happened to me twice. And, and you know, listening to his music and listening to his lyrics, like, that's why I can relate so much because him and I were going through a lot of the same thing. Um, but, you know, I I realized, you know, at one point I was like, you know what? I'm not going to hold on to pain anymore. I'm not going to hold on to anger. I have my, my son my daughter on weekends. Um, and what I actually did was in a way, it got me through, but it was very, very, very unhealthy. Um, I started getting into politics, and the reason why I got into politics was for my children. I had known how horrible the family court system is, not just in Maryland, but, but nationwide. Uh, and it can be very biased towards fathers, and sometimes mothers, too, so... One of the things I thought about when I was getting into politics is, you know, I I researched heavily the father's rights movement. And let me tell you about the father's rights movement. The father's rights movement is a crock of shit. Okay. Mostly what it is. Now, don't get me wrong, there's some good people involved with the father's rights movement, but mostly what it is is a bunch of lawyers who are looking to make money off of fathers, because they know fathers sometimes are so desperate to see their kids. A father will put himself in poverty to just try to get joint custody in a custody battle. So these these lawyers involved with this movement were predators, and I, I recognized that very soon. Um, and I started doing my own thing. I you know, drafted legislation with uh, a gentleman uh, named David uh, who was going through – Very similar situation to myself. We presented it to, uh, who was it, down in Annapolis, uh, the Senate. Um, Of course, all the special interest groups don't want it to pass. Uh, There's a lot of money involved, so the legislation was shelved. Um, I actually ran for office, and that might – a lot of you listening to this might actually know me from politics and be like, Chris, what the hell? You know, you went from Ron Paul in politics to – comic books and Star Wars. But I'll explain why that happened later. Um, But I put all my focus into running for office. So, you know, what I would do when I didn't have my kids is I would go to work from 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. I'd go home, sleep for three or four hours, get up, start door knocking. And I'd door knock all day until I had to go to work. Um, I was involved with Campaign for Liberty. And... Some of the greatest people I've met in my entire life. And, uh, you know, that kind of got me through. But what I was doing is I was creating a very unhealthy cycle because I was hyper-focusing on politics when I did not have my kids. And anybody who's involved with politics knows it's not sunshine, sunshine and rainbows. Um, I had a lot of people telling me their stories, and I recognize our government for what it is. It's, it's evil. Evil and the people who represent us don't care about us, they care about money. Um, You know, good example Chris Christie, John McCain, horrible people. Uh, Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, horrible people. Um, And you know, it, it, I, in a way, I felt like politics. I said, you know what, I'm not going to win in court, so I need to focus on changing the laws. Well, I'll tell you what, you can have the best intentions, you can have an honest heart and soul and be doing it for the right reasons, but in politics, they will chew you up and they will spit you out. And my first first time I ran, my first election, uh, I think 18 or 19 people ran against me, and I got close to five or 6,000 votes, which, if I remember correctly, put me about 1,500 votes away from being elected. And that was the first time I ran, and I put my heart and soul into it. I didn't have any money. Um, Campaign for Liberty. they were awesome. They, you know, did do brochures for me. Um, but most of it was because I was going around door knocking and listening to people's problems and hearing what was affecting them, how our government and, and that's an important point for me at some point I had to stop hating the mothers, okay? And I needed to realize that the system, the family law courts, our government, um, they, they encourage and reward the behavior that has been displayed in the situations with my custody battle where my child, my children had been withheld from me, where I was living off $300 a week and impoverished uh, just for being a father. So I don't want to go on a political rant here or anything, but – I did politics for a long time. I got to meet a lot of cool people, Um, Adam Kokesh, uh, uh, Austin Peterson, I was actually his fundraising manager um, in the last election, Um, Tony Stiles, uh, somebody who helps me dearly um, in life just by her inspiration and how strong she is, Macy, Macy Tomlin, if anybody's on facebook listen to this look up macy tomlin give her a follow because the girl she's got the most beautiful soul uh she actually looks wise reminds me of my daughter um and I, i hope my daughter grows up to be as wonderful as macy is um but she's somebody who really just hearing her speak and and the gentleness and the kindness and the peace within her she's somebody that helps lift me out up out of dark places and she she knows that I've had conversations with her about it, um, much like Chester, you know. Um, the contrast is Macy's a very positive person, but, you know, Macy's had her struggles in life, too, and she's, she's beating them. She's doing things the right way, and, you know, I, I kind of look at Macy as somebody I want to be like in the end. I want to help other people. I want to, you know, be able to just say those words to make somebody feel better. And Chester, while well, like I said, it was in contrast, his was in pain and agony. But at the same time, he he helped me hold on too. Um, so I, I just hyper focused on politics. I ran for office several times, and uh, finally, I think it was about a year and a half ago. I uh, the election was over, and uh, I kind of took a back seat and took a break from politics and realized that it was causing a lot more stress and pain to me. I was not happy. I used to be a very witty person. I used to laugh and make jokes and just be real quick and have a sense of humor. I lost that doing politics. I lost who I was doing politics. I became very serious. And everything I saw on TV aggravated me. And, and I hated the world. And I was listening to Alex Jones. And um, I just hated everything about life. And after I got out of politics, that left a big gap in my life, my, what, what do I do? So, you know, I started staying in bed again, I was depressed. And that's where getting back to my ex-girlfriend comes into play. Um, May of last year, she sent me a message and we, we hadn't talked in five years. Um, I didn't know how she was doing. I didn't know anything that was going on with her. All I knew is that I still loved her dearly and missed her and felt guilty about, you know, neglecting her, not appreciating all she was giving me. And uh, she contacted me, it was her birthday, and she asked me to come out with her mother and father and go shopping at Towson Town Center. And she said, you know, I just want to see you and have you come be with us and be with me on my birthday. And I, at that point, was, I was like, okay, well, I'm gonna, you know, it's been five years, I'm gonna go out and see her, and when I got there, uh, I could tell something was off, she didn't look the same, Um, she was very, very animated, like overly animated, Um, everything seemed to be on fast forward for her, and then it would go in slow motion, and I just, I knew something was off, but I didn't know what. So we went out, you know, I spent time with her mother and father who I love dearly and are two people who've been there um, for me through thick and thin. Um, And, you know, we went out, we had lunch, we went shopping, got her some presents, and then we called it a day and I went home. And later that night she messaged me and said, hey, listen, I need a ride to a doctor's appointment tomorrow. I don't have a ride right now. Can you take me? And of course, in my head, I'm thinking, oh, that's why she wanted me to come out today. She needed something. But I said, yeah, I would take her to the doctor's appointment. So the next day, I, I took her to her doctor's appointment. And I remember when we pulled up to the place where she said her doctor's was, I was like, this doesn't look like a doctor's office. It just, it doesn't. And I took her to the doctor's and then dropped her off. We had lunch and then I dropped her off at her house and, you know, left and went to work that night and was just sitting there thinking to myself, you know, what, a, you know, there's something's not right about this. She's off this doctor's office. She wouldn't tell me what it was about. So I looked up the place I took her online and it was a methadone clinic. And I didn't even know what methadone was. Okay, I'm not somebody who has ever experimented with heroin, um, hard drugs or had an addiction problem. I'm, and quite honestly, I've never known anyone up until that point who has so like methadone clinic, what is that? So I start researching methadone. And I'm finding out it's prescribed to people who have opium dependencies. And I'm kind of in shock at that point, And I'm saying to myself, you know, no, she, this, this girl would not do this. This, she would not, she would not do this. She would not get hooked on drugs. So I made a decision. I said, you know what, either way, I have a responsibility at this point to contact her father and let her father know what's going on. So I uh, got off at work that night, went over to his house and left him, wrote him a letter and uh, said, hey, look, contact me. Uh, He ended up contacting me. I met up with him, and he told me the truth, um, that my ex had become a heroin addict. And I just remember I was so shattered, and I immediately went and found her and told her she needed to get help. One of the things she told me was, After her and I split, she became very depressed. Um, She basically hurt so bad about what she did to me inside, she needed to numb the pain. And that was a pain that was caused partially because of my pride, the way I handled it. Because I was too proud to look at myself and say, what did I contribute to? Her downfall, what did I contribute to her cheating on me um and my refusal to talk to her to just oh you're dead to me, uh cut her off, never talk to her again and and she, this beautiful girl, gorgeous girl <clears throat> who had a great job and you know her kids loved her kids, was a good mom, was a good mom to my kids, and picked me up when I was treading water and made sure my head you know stayed above, ended up becoming addicted to heroin. Um, I don't know if there's anybody out there who has family members who are addicted to heroin, but it is a nightmare. It is one... I, I, I talked about earlier how painful my custody battles are and how horrible it's been for me to be without my kids. There's not much in life that measures up to that. But when you see somebody you care about who is addicted in that way, it's completely earth-shattering. So I started trying to get her help. A lot of days, she didn't have time to go to the meth or didn't have a ride to the methadone clinic. So luckily, my work was not too far away from her. I would sleep in my car, and I would take her to the methadone clinic the next day, and then take her back to where she was living and go sleep in my car in a park, which, you know, 90 degree, 100 degree weather, that's not the most comfortable feeling in the world. Um, But I did everything in my power to try to get her help, to try to to get her talking to somebody, to get her off the heroin. And of course, anyone who knows anything about addiction, the addict is going to lie to you. They're gonna tell you they're not doing anything. They're doing really good. Um, and I remember the one day I, I broke down because she was telling me I'm not doing anything. It was obvious she had track marks on her. Um, and I got down on my knees, and I begged her to please let me take her to Shepherd Pratt and see if Shepherd Pratt could help her. And she broke down, started crying, and, and accepted, and I took her straight up to Shepherd Pratt, um, that process was just a nightmare. You sit there and for anybody who doesn't know Shepherd Pratt is a mental health and drug and rehab facility in Maryland. I took her up there, sat with her. Um, you know, call her mom and dad were there. We were trying to get her admitted, but they could not admit her because They could not give her her methadone in the morning. Now, methadone, for people who don't know about methadone, methadone is what they give you to get off an opiate. Um, And once again, methadone clinics are actually funded uh, partially by our government. And methadone is actually a lot harder to get off of than heroin. What methadone does, it actually makes it so you don't want to get high and you don't get sick if you don't get high. But what methadone ends up doing is when, it gets, when you start taking methadone, it goes into your brain. It goes into your bones. It goes into every part of your body. Okay? So what happens is when you try to get off methadone, you go through hell. Your body goes through absolute hell. Your bones hurt, your body hurts, every aspect of your blinking your eyes hurts. Okay? And what ends up happening is people start doing the methadone and then they feel all right but then they get upset or something brings them down and they start doing heroin on top of the methadone. And then at that point, um, they have to do more heroin so they're at risk for an overdose. And then they go into the clinic And the clinic gives them more methadone, and everything just keeps ramping up to the point where the person is on such a high dose dose of methadone, it's going to take them years to recover from it if they do get off of it. And, you know, as much as our government wants to say, oh, the war on drugs, which is bullshit, by the way, the war on drugs is the worst thing that could have possibly happened in America to addicts. Um, But our government tries oh, we're against drugs. Uh, Hogan, you know, we all elected Hogan in Maryland, but what has he done? He hasn't done shit exactly. Um, he, not he, but uh, these clinics profit off of putting people on methadone, and all's methadone is at this point is it's it's heroin, it's legal heroin, okay, and. The, the methadone clinics, they have no plan when you go in there. Okay, well, we're going to start you on this much methadone, and then we're going to start stepping you down in this amount of months. No. Their job is, they're the dealer. They're to get you hooked so you're stuck. And when a person's stuck like that, they start turning to heroin and crack. All sorts of dark, 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 bad things. And, and relating back to Chester, this is stuff Chester's gone through um, addiction, substance abuse. Um, going back to me, I don't know how, and I, I thank God. And I just, maybe I was given some wisdom or some strength that I don't know I have, but I never ran to that stuff. I never thought about putting a needle in my arm. I never thought about smoking crack or, you know, it, it, and part of the reason why is, you know, I'm a father, I have kids, you know, I, yeah, I, I've suffered through the pain the hard way. I didn't take any easy ways out. Um, You know, my drinking, I don't, I mean, I drink occasionally, but I don't drink like I did at the beginning of my son's custody battle. Um, Maybe one or two beers here and there. Um, Every once in a while, I'll go out and tie one on. But I talk to my therapist about that, my psychiatrist, and I'm very honest about, you know, my intake. But I've never, never turned to drugs. Through all I've been through, how many nights I've laid and I've cried in bed and just said, God, please kill me. I wish I were dead. Not once did I ever did ever stoop to that, because I'll tell you right now, when you do that, you're not just hurting yourself, you're hurting everybody around you. Okay? You're causing everybody else around you pain. I mean, my my ex has not seen her children in a year. Two beautiful children that I love more than anything in the world, and if they're listening to this, I want them to know. I fought very hard to get your mother help, very hard. I slept in my car for your mother. The little bit of money I had, I was, you know, I would buy her food. Um, but eventually I realized I wasn't helping her. I was enabling her. Um, I did get her into Shepherd Pratt. She went for a few weeks, got out, said everything was all right. And of course that was a lie the whole time. And Not a lie, because she's a bad person, but that's what addiction does when drugs take a hold of you. When you get wrapped up in something like heroin, it becomes your life. Um, And eventually, I, you know, when she went to Shepherd Pratt, I took a little break. I let her do her thing, let her get her help, Um, and I had a hard time dealing with it. my bucket had overflown, my cup had overflown at that point. I was having problems at work. I like once again I was sleeping in my car. Um my kids, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, those were days of hell for me. Those were days where I was in pain because I didn't get to hear from my kids. I didn't get to see them. I was living for my weekends. And I, I felt, you know, I, I had dark thoughts. I felt suicidal. Like I remember talking to myself a lot saying, you know, maybe your kids are better off without you, you know. But having my kids and being able to see them and do fun things with them on weekends, I, I had peace on the weekends when I had my kids. I still do. When I have my kids, I, I'm at peace. Um, I'm happy. I'm a role model. But it's when I'm alone, when I'm without them, that's when like chester said it's like it's a very bad neighborhood very dark very bad neighborhood that nobody should be walking through alone um so i ended up uh breaking down okay and i realized that she wasn't getting the help she needed uh she ended up hooking up with a man who Basically was getting her her drugs for free, and uh, she ran off with him. And they've lived in a broken-down car in Baltimore City. No showering, nowhere to go. Uh, The only thing they live for is to get drugs. Luckily, he's in jail right now. Um, But I kind of stepped out of the picture for a little bit. And then of course, you know, me breaking down, my relationships deteriorated with my parents. Um, I was having problems at work. I was living with my parents all through this because on $300 every two weeks, how are you gonna get your own place? How do you survive? Um, You know, I was sleeping in my car just to get to work like I said earlier. Uh, But my parents and I ended up getting into some arguments and that's because I was carrying the weight of the world on my shoulders and one point, I had to leave. Um, And I actually reached out, I got help from my employee assistance program at work, I'd started seeing a therapist. And my therapist and I had been, you know, talking about where I was at in life. And, you know, it was to the point where financially, I just been beaten into the ground. Like I had nothing to live for, I only thing I had to live for was getting my kids on the weekend. And after six seven years of living like that i was i was destroyed and i was never one to like really believe in mental health like ptsd or um depression but this therapist sat me down and was like listen you need to realize you've been through some very traumatic experiences and we need to get you help um I conveyed to her, you know, I, I knew I wasn't going to be able to stay at my parents at that point anymore. Um, and it wasn't my parents' fault. It was me. It was just where I was at in my head. Like I, I was in too much pain. I broke, I was a broken soul. And, uh, so I ended up, uh, moving in with Side. He's the co-owner of CGN. He actually owns CGN. Um, and opened up to him, told him he knew everything about my ex-girlfriend. Um, he knew what, you know, he's been there through it all um, with my kids, my daughter, my son. Known him for about 20 years Is, is my brother. Um, ended up moving in with Yenside. But the problem was there, at that point, I needed to let the mothers know uh, that I was not going to be able to get my kids that weekend Because I was in the process of moving. Um, And I knew that more than likely the mothers were going to try to turn this to their advantage in court. And that I probably would not see my kids again for a long while. So I talked to my my therapist about that. And my therapist uh, said, listen, you know, what happens if you don't see your kids? I said, I can't tell you there. I said, I wouldn't put it past myself to do something stupid. Um, and by something stupid, I mean kill myself. So uh, she, my therapist told me, look, well, then we need to come up with a plan. <clears throat> um, let's just assume that you're not going to see your kids after you call the mothers tonight. Uh, what I want you to do is call the mothers and then go to the hospital and check yourself in. I said, okay. So I called my son's mother. Son's mother was very supportive, um, surprisingly supportive. Called my daughter's mother, and she was not very supportive. So um, I went and I checked myself in to GBMC, told them that I was suicidal. They took me back into the back, which is basically, for all intents and purposes, a padded room. Um, I sat there for about 24 hours by myself. I didn't let my mother. I did not let my father. The only person who knew I was there was Eric, or not Eric, Yenside. Um, and I can tell you right now, like, sitting in there was scary because I was depressed. I was you know, had suicidal thoughts, but there were people in there that had schizophrenia, um, were talking to themselves, were screaming. Um, and I realized, I said, you know what? Not crazy. I, I don't belong here. I need help. So I ended up discharging myself um, from GBMC. The next day I went up to Shepherd Pratt, the very same place I took my ex to, and enrolled in their day program, and what their day program is 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 basically you go at nine a.m. and you're there till about four p.m. in the afternoon, and you do group therapy. Um, I felt like an idiot having to do it. It was embarrassing. Um, I uh, my my daughter's mom just basically was trying to get the dirt on the situation so she could give it to her lawyer. And that's not who she is as a person. But her lawyer, like I said earlier, is a douchebag. And instead of him encouraging her to make sure that her daughter's father was okay, he was an opportunist and told her to get information. And about my first or second week at Shepherd Pratt, you know, going through the therapy and everything, I actually asked my social worker and my psychiatrist to have a conversation with my daughter's mother and uh, let her know what was going on and hopefully she would understand and be understanding like my son's mother. Well, they went to go have that conversation with her, came back to me and said, we're not gonna have that conversation with her we feel like she is just gathering information for her lawyer. So, uh, needless to say, I went through Shepherd Pratt. I can't say enough good things about the staff at Shepherd Pratt, uh, the nurses, the social workers. It was really an amazing experience. And and one thing about empathic people like myself and like Chester and like Macy, um, no matter how much pain we're in, we always try to help other people. And I can tell you when I was at Shepherd Pratt, there was a young lady who tried to slit her wrists. I talked her down from it. Um, she literally was outside with a knife to her wrists. Um, uh, going back a little bit, um, I did forget one thing that contributed to me going to Shepherd Pratt. I actually at one point was down in Baltimore City looking for my ex-girlfriend. Um, Her father and I were looking for her because she'd been gone for about three days and I knew where she bought her drugs. And I went down into the neighborhood, was looking for her and I got jumped. Um, I defended myself. One of the gentlemen who jumped me, I hurt very badly. Um, But I, uh, you know, that was a very traumatizing experience as well. So I was in Shepherd Pratt because My financial situation, living off $300 every two weeks, sleeping in my car, um, the bullying that was taking place at work, uh, the situation with my ex-girlfriend, my kids, not seeing my kids, and I was in there and met people that had problems like myself, and I, I was very invested in the program. I enjoyed going every day. I met a wonderful girl who had been through similar circumstances as my, my ex in her past. And she actually helped me come to terms with what was going on with my ex because this girl made the decision to get help and she did it. And she's very, very beautiful girl. I actually met another girl while I was in there and entered into a relationship with her for a while, but, you know, we ended up drifting apart, but, uh, you know it was uh one of the, the best feeling was one of my psychiatrists told me you know you're getting a lot of compliments from the staff the nurses and other patients here and she said you know i people were telling me you're helping them i would sit down and i would talk to other people and help them and and just give them a reason to live you know figure out what was wrong with them and send them back out into the world and and I can honestly say I helped a lot of people just by talking. I had one girl tell me, you know, you actually have helped me more than the psychiatrist and the nurses here. And that's not taking a dig at Shepard Pratt. That was just, I was a very easy person to confide in. I I hopefully gave good advice, and I hope these people that I talked to and helped are doing much better today because of it. But the one thing my uh, psychiatrist told me was, you know, you're helping all these other people, but you're neglecting yourself. You're not, um, helping yourself by helping them. You need to start talking about yourself, your problems, which was very, very hard for me. Um, anybody who doesn't know about PTSD, uh, one of the symptoms of PTSD is flashbacks. And it's not like you see on TV where, you know, you go back and you're, you know, in a time, you know, it's, I can't explain it. You just freeze, um, and I battle. I mean, I have flashbacks. I do. Uh, fortunately, it's not when I'm driving. It's not, you know, it's it's when I get stuck alone in my head. And what, what I basically do is I shut down, okay? I go into my own little world. I remember the past. I, I basically catastrophize the future. Um, and when I'm having a flashback, you can tap me on the shoulder, you can say my name, but I'm not there. And one of the big things about me going out in public and carrying all this with me is, you know, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of where I'm at in life. I'm ashamed of not seeing my son and daughter as much. I'm ashamed that, you know, I don't have a house. I don't have a car. I don't, I have a car, but I don't have my own house. I, I don't, I don't have a life. Um, And some of the stuff we talked about at Shepard Pratt was I needed to start finding distractions. I needed to start focusing on things that made me happy. And, you know, that's hard to think about when you're as destroyed and upset as I was. Like, nothing makes you happy. But one of the things I ended up thinking about was my kids. My son loves Star Wars. And my daughter, she loved Teen Titans Go and she really was into the superhero stuff. And uh, I said to myself, well, what if I do something around the things they love? And when I was younger, when I I loved Star Wars, I loved superheroes, like that was my world. I used to sit in school and instead of doing schoolwork, I'd draw pictures of Batman. And um, I I started, you know, I, I started thinking, you know, well, what if I do something that reminds me of them? So I went home, and I talked to Yenside, uh, and I said, look, i got an idea. I said, let's, let's start, start a business. He's like, well, what would we do? And I said, well, it's easy. And Yenside's Jenside, a big Star Wars fan. Like, he never got away from it. My kids got me back into it. I was out of the game for a while, but they got me back into it. Um, I said, well, we're going to do podcasting, um, video Journalism surrounding Star Wars news and comic book news and superhero news. And we, for the first part of last year, spent planning the business. And I was able to do that and I was able to commit to it and and lean on it and have it distract me because it wasn't just something I was doing for myself. It was something I was doing for my kids. It was something, a way I could build their life, the way when they're 18, maybe this business is profitable and they, they can take it over. Um, but it wasn't easy. Okay. I, I did a lot of the writing at first, but then it started requiring me having to go out and talk to people and go to events. And that was very hard. Um, and eventually after two months at Shepherd Pratt, uh, I was on, I was on short-term leave from work. So I was still getting a small paycheck. Child support was still being paid. Um, Eventually, when I got out of Shepherd Pratt, I switched to long-term, um, long-term leave, and you know I'm, I'm still getting paid long-term leave from work. But you know our business hasn't made one dollar yet. Uh, it doesn't look like it's going to do it anytime soon. Um, but we're in the process of building, gaining followers, uh, gaining fans. I can tell you right now, our podcasts. We just looked at them about two weeks ago to see how many subscriptions we have. Uh, I figured we'd have at the most 30 people subscribe to us. Since June 4th, we've had on average 110 people subscribe to our podcast a day. So that tells me we're doing something right. And getting out of Shepherd Proud, I was able to put my focus on that business and, you know, Started getting my son every weekend. I didn't get him when I was going to Shepherd Pratt just because that was my time to heal and get better. Um, and, you know, started telling him about the business. He was very excited. Um, he's actually gets on YouTube now and has more subscribers than the CGN YouTube does. So that's, you know, he this is right down his alley. He loves it and I can't wait to show my daughter. Uh, my daughter i've not seen her since October of last year on her birthday. Um, yes, I made an attempt to, um, but she uh, her mother will not allow it um, so a lot of this year has been me saving up money to get a lawyer so that I can actually go into court and have a chance to get all this fixed and start seeing my daughter again and it took me months to be able to save up enough money off my short-term leave to actually be able to get a lawyer. And in those months, Yen uh, Seid and his fiance, soon um, soon-to-be wife, my mom, my dad, um, my son's mother, have stood by my side and have seen the amount of pain I'm in from not seeing my daughter. It's not easy. It's, it's not easy at all. Um, what makes it worse is, you know, I'm not somebody who's self-medicating. I'm not running to drugs. I'm not running to alcohol. I just sit and I suffer. And I, I haven't seen, like I said, I haven't seen my daughter since October. I have very strong, great relationship with my daughter. And I hope I still do when she sees me again. Last time she saw me, she said, Daddy, it's been too long. And it was only a month that she hadn't seen me or two months. She said, it's been too long. I need to see you more. I need to see you more. Well, my daughter has not seen me since October now. And it's not because I'm a bad person. It's not because I'm violent, a criminal. Um, It's not because I do drugs or I drink or I'm verbally or physically abusive. It is because the way the system is set up, an attorney manipulated my daughter's mother into making the decision she's made, based off of financial gain. Um, and like I said, I'm not gonna, not gonna beat her up. She's a good mother. I know my daughter is safe with her. But the people she has surrounding her in her life are not giving her advice that's in the best interest of my daughter. I'll leave that at that. But. That's something I've had to struggle with. Of course, I've been out of work because there's days I don't want to get out of bed. Um, There's days that things happen, you know, in relation to my kids or my lawyer calls with some bad news or some good news. And my life's constantly in a state of being shattered right now. Um, But in order to get through it, I focus on the business. I sing. I sing. Um, I force myself to go out into situations like the live streams on Wednesday nights and act. And that's the other thing about the live streams. Anybody who watches the live streams realize that's acting, okay? We're all acting. That's not how we normally live our lives. What you're hearing at the beginning of this podcast and all through is, is our lives. So when I put on that suit... It's a temporary break from the hell that I've been in. But it's also very hard for me to put on that suit. It's very hard for me to be as funny as I am on those live streams and be as interactive and talk as much as I do. I don't think anyone will ever understand how hard it is for me to push myself to do a podcast like this. Back uh, in December... When we decided we were going to start doing podcasts. I was just so critical of myself, have such a low self-esteem. I had all the equipment. I had everything I needed. We didn't do our first podcast until June 4th. And the reason for that was I didn't have confidence in myself. I was afraid to get behind this microphone and talk that people would make fun of me, people would hear me, people would, you know, my, my, my son's mom or my daughter's mom would, would listen to it and be like, oh, listen, you know, he's out doing this. Or when I've gone out to events to sing or cosplay events, oh, look, he's out having a good time, which, by the way, there was a lot of conversations at my uh, old place of employment um, about how oh, look at him, he's out having a good time, he's having fun, and the company's paying him. Well, let me tell you right now, you know, that's, that's part of my building myself up, okay? And what people don't get to see, just like Chester Bennington, just like my ex, they don't get to see those dark moments when, at the end of the day, I come home and I have to be with myself, I have to go up and lay my head down on my pillow and not, get it, not be able to say goodnight to my son or my daughter and tuck them in. Not be able to have them come home from school every day and say, hey, how was school? That's, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've cried myself to sleep. And, you know, I've always, driving in my car, like when I get like that, you know, I, I, my music, Linkin Park, stained oasis, cold. Um, They're all bands that get me through those times. But I've I've gotten really good at distracting myself and when I get down, I work on the business. And that goes without saying, I work on the business a lot. There's some days I wake up at 4 a.m. and I work till 3 p.m. and then I go to sleep for an hour. I take a nap and then I get back up and I work till 1 a.m. and then I go to sleep. So, there's a lot goes into CGN and Arkham Beauties and Clown Prince Entertainment that you you guys don't know about. And you know, I, I I'm doing it. And I hope you guys like what we're doing and I hope, you know, by you guys hearing this story, you know, it, it helps some people out there. Cause this isn't just about comic books and Star Wars, it's a way I'm making my life better. It's a way I'm gonna make my children's lives better. It's gonna be a way Hopefully, I can touch some of you and and distract you from some of the stuff that's going on in your lives. Um, But yeah, it took me six months just to get the courage to get on mic, the podcast, and I can't be any more thankful for having, you know, Yenside, who has worked his ass off on making this business, CGN, possible, because... You know, I'm here doing that all day, but inside he he goes to work. He gets up at four AM and he uh works all day, comes home at about five o'clock exhausted, starts working on the business, puts the money out to pay for the website and everything we need to make this a reality. But his face isn't in the spotlight like mine. He's not on the podcast, he doesn't have people messaging him, asking him for autographs and you know he's doing it he's, without him none of this is possible um and then also chuck you know chuck my co-host he i i couldn't have found a better co-host because him and i just we flow like i'm comfortable with him he's somebody who you know i it's not hard for me to be social around um but and then of course eric's fiance nicole i mean you got to figure these people my darkest hours let me move in here i don't pay rent here well i'm starting to pay rent but i haven't paid rent here the past year i've eaten their food i've lived in their house i've you know my brother he's taken care of me and he's been there for eric's been there a lot for me in life um but yeah so it's you know, and I think it's hard for people that are going through some sort of a trauma, have depression, anxiety to open up because I've had the conversation with the a few times. Like, you know, I'm out having a good time. It seems like I'm happy and I'm smiling and I'm on top of the world and I'm a rock star. But that's not how I feel inside. And that is, that's a smile that I wear and it takes a lot to put that smile on every day I wake up. So when you listen to my podcast and you see me when I'm out, just realize, you know, yes, that is a way of coping for me. Um, but I carry a lot of lot of pain inside. And the ultimate goal of all this is to fix those situations so I can see my children more, so that I can have some sort of a life, you know, where I'm not financially pounded into the ground to the point where I can't take care of myself or my kids. Um, <clears throat> but outside of that, you know, we, we started CGN and I was focused on that. And then next thing I know, um, my birthday rolls around this year and my ex got in touch with me saying she wanted help, was in a very bad place. And I, I, Not going to leave her stranded. Went out and tried to help her. Um, I ended up spending my birthday in a hotel room watching her do heroin because the rehabs in Maryland will not allow somebody to go into rehab unless they're down to like 30 milligrams of methadone. Well, she was on about 90. And it would have taken six to seven months for her to get into rehab and down to thirty if she could do it, and that's a big if after what we discussed about methadone earlier. So the advice the uh, the counselor, the rehab clinic told me was, he said, if you care about this girl, you will take her and you will let her use, let her monitor how much she's using um, enough to supplement uh, the Methadone. Her not getting methadone. He said, "Let her use in a safe manner, um, instead of using methadone, and get her down to thirty milligrams, milligrams, and then get her into a rehab." Well, I tried. One of her friends and I spent a week in a hotel with her, um, and her father was involved. Her mother was involved, and sooner or later we just all realized it it wasn't working like it was we were enabling her still so I had to completely after March 29th I completely walked away my birthday I completely walked away from the situation with her I still talked to her father and mother but I realized if she's going to get help she needs to get her help herself um and it's I'll never give up on hope that she gets better um but it's a lot to deal with on top of not seeing my kids, you know. So going back to that, you know, I put a lot more heart into CGN. You know, we've started our podcasts. We've gotten more subscriptions to our podcasts than we actually do have likes on the CGN page. Um, and that's how I'm dealing. I deal by when I find somebody else who is in pain, talking to them. That's actually the benefit we did for the seven-year-old boy with leukemia. How that all came about was I went out one night, put myself in a social situation, went out to go sing karaoke, and I was there and was just feeling the pain in the room. And I found somebody who there's no way I could have known was in a lot of pain. Spoke to them, found out what was going on, found out that her grandson has leukemia and is dying. And all he wanted was, you know, he wanted an Xbox One. And uh, I asked her, I said, well, how would you feel if a bunch of superheroes showed up, you know, to cheer him up? He had kids in the neighborhood picking on him because he lost his hair. How would, you know, maybe these kids need to see Superman, Batman, you know, Deadpool showing up. That's how all that started. That's, that's how that benefit started. And we, we, raised, we have raised enough money to get him an Xbox One. Actually, the very first person who came to the benefit um, got him an Xbox One. And the way that benefit came about was uh, Sundays are always rough days for me because that's the day that my kids go back to their mom. I went and dropped my son off, was upset, was crying on the way home, realized I was in a dark place and said, you know what, I need to do something to get out of this said, you know what? We're gonna have a benefit for this kid tonight. We're gonna, we're gonna get him an Xbox One. And in three hours, I threw that together. I went up to Howard's Pub and I, I told him, I said, look, you know, we've got a seven-year-old boy in the community that has leukemia. Uh, I wanna have some people up here tonight in cosplay costume and uh, try to raise enough money to get him an Xbox One. They said, definitely. I uh, Contacted the karaoke DJ. Uh, made this all happen in three or four hours to the point where Channel 2 News, or it was either Channel 2 or Ch- Channel 11, showed up. Um, that was me taking my pain and how I was feeling inside and converting it into something good. Uh, something that kept me going, but not only kept me going, but it improved somebody's life. And I want to thank everyone again who came out to that because it was just as much for me as it was for. You know, the little boy, the seven-year-old boy. Um, and we ended up getting the Xbox One and raising enough money to buy five games, an extra controller, and, uh, and a gift card. And then about two, what was it, about a week later, we all went down to John Hopkins, where he was at, and gave it to him. And I got to tell you, when that little boy, um, what I did when I was dressed as Deadpool, discount Deadpool, I walked him up to the table... And all the stuff was set up on a table, and all the superheroes were there, dressed in cosplay. And I said, do you like this stuff? And that little boy just looked at me, and he goes, yeah, yeah, but we we can't afford. And then he kind of stopped, because he was embarrassed, or I don't know if he didn't want anybody to hear what he was saying, but he was saying, we can't afford this. And I said, this is yours. This is your Xbox One. These are your games. And his jaw just dropped. And, you know, I've gotten some updates on him from his mother, and he's doing a lot better. He's doing better, and there's actually a possibility that he is going to beat this. And I'd like to think it's because, in some way, you know, my darkness got turned into something good to help someone else. Um, but... You know, outside of that, it's a lot for me to deal with, and I'm doing, you know, a situation with my kids. Um, Last week, some bad things happened. Um, My check that I'm using to pay my lawyer with from disability was actually taken by the state of Maryland um, for not paying enough child support. And don't get me wrong, I, I I believe in paying child support, but when it forces another parent into poverty and the other parent's going on trips to Disney World and getting full-sleeve tattoos on their arm and um, living the life of Riley and the other parent is sleeping in their car just to provide money for their children. There's something wrong. And once again, that's not a reflection on people. That's a reflection on the system, the world we live in, Um, the business of family law, throughout the United States. It's not there to help you. It's not there to protect kids. It's there for the state to profit off of. Um, But, you know, one of the big things that happened last week, once again, was Chester committing suicide. And that took a long time for me to wrap my head around. I mean, I literally just sat in my bed for about seven or eight hours reading articles, like just trying to figure out there was no note, nothing. And, you know, the thought that, you know, I I put a post on Facebook, you know, the thought that he was fighting the same demons that I thought that many of us have fought and he, his music helped pull me through and helped me beat were the same demons that ended up taking his life in the end is a very scary thought. Um, and the other thing I just, I can't wrap my head around is, you know, I felt like that. I've, I've looked up how to hang yourself online. I've looked up the least painful ways to die. Like, you know, I've researched it. I've had plans. And the only thing that kept me from that was knowing my son and my daughter would have to deal with that that's not something I want to put on them or even Yen's side or Chuck or any of the fans that message me. Um, just makes me think, you know, Chester, you know, he dealt with some sexual abuse growing up, uh, physical abuse. He had his divorce. Um, we all need to start thinking about how we treat each other and the conversations we have and the things we do to each other. And, not just go with the flow anymore and be like, hey, you know, I'm doing this because this is what happens today. We really got to start finding compassion. And anybody that knows Chester has met him. He was a very vibrant, bright person, very compassionate, uplifting. You cannot be around him and feel down because he would not let you. And that's the experience I had with him. That's the experience that's echoed over all the fan pages and anybody I've spoke to that's met him. He He used his pain to help others. And really, I mean, it's what, 2017 now, we're going into 2018. Come on, we just all need to start caring about each other a little more. I mean, the whole reason why we're here is to be happy, yet we go out of our way to make ourselves and others unhappy. We put value on material possessions that we don't need and, and, just stupid little idealists, ideals that society forces on us you know if, with me it's, it's, I think I've got it a lot easier than other people out there I've got my kids so I know I'm never going to do anything because I, I live for my kids um, that's always what keeps me from you know putting that belt around my neck but, you know, there's some people out there that don't have those kids. They don't have those kids to m- make them stop and say, oh, I'm I'm not going to kill myself. Or don't have a family around them or don't have good friends. And you know what? If those of us who do just pay a little bit more attention to each other, to the people around us, we won't have situations like Chester Bennington occur. You know, it's... uh. It's very tragic, and you know, it's uh, with the things that have happened in my life in the past week. Yes, I've I've been in that bad neighborhood that Chester talked about, walking around alone in my mind. And you know, the one thing that kept me and keeps me from doing anything is is my kids, and my kids that I'm. You know, my son. I I like I said, I'm back to seeing him all the time. I've been back to seeing him all the time. It's just I have to wait for the courts and my lawyer to step in and fix things with my daughter. Um, and, you know, really, just, just like Chester's situation, I feel like this could all be avoided. I feel like, you know, if there was a little bit more compassion, I just had a serious conversation with my son's mom last night. I, I think I finally opened her eyes as to what I've been through the past 10 years. Um, I don't think any of you who know me outside of Yen's side can possibly fathom the amount of pain I've been in the the self-destruction the not even anger but just the broke being a broken soul and I completely understand you know I, I don't think it's abnormal for Chester to have the thoughts he was having but my god you know if you know somebody like that if you feel like that reach out get help uh I can tell you a few people Uh, have contacted me personally from the live streams Wednesday night and have contacted Arkham Beauties who were in that bad neighborhood, who were trapped in their head and were suicidal. You've got a lot to live for and things can change on a dime. Um, Like right now, there's a possibility my son might be coming to live with me. And I'm not going to ask his mom for child support. I'm not going to make it hard on her. I'm not going to you know, be vindictive or, or hurt her. But there's just some things going on where, you know, it might be time for him to come live with me. And that's something we discussed. Um, but honestly, 10 years ago, when this all started, uh, six years ago, when this all started, my daughter, if people had been a little bit more passionate, I don't think I'd be where I'm at today. And where I'm at today isn't that bad of a place. I mean, it is emotionally and mentally, but I've also got a lot of good things going on. And the reason why I have those good things going on are because of people like you listening to this podcast because of Yenside who helped me start CGN because of Chuck who co-hosts our shows with me every week because of Macy who gives me inspiration from afar because my kids um, my son's mother, my mother and father, Yenside's uh, fiancé, just all lifting me up and and seeing me and knowing the kind of person I am and what I'm capable of and believing in me. Um, my therapist and my psychiatrist at Shepard Pratt that I see on a weekly basis. Um, these are all people who help put me back together. These are all people that have tactfully worked their ways into my life against, sometimes against my will. Because um, like I said, I, my natural inclination is to isolate. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to be around anybody. And it's taken a year, over a year, for those people to work themselves into my life and get me to a, help get me to a point where I'm strong and I can... Look at a situation like what happened with Chester and say, I'm not going to follow in his footsteps. I owe it. You know, if there's any Lincoln Park fans out there and you felt like this or anybody felt, you owe it to Chester at this point not to commit suicide or do anything stupid. I owe it to my mother, my father, Jenside, Nicole, Chuck, Liam, Alice, my son, daughter. Uh, therapist, psychiatrist, everybody and anybody who's helped me to never let those demons that beat Chester win. So, i uh, been going on for about an hour and 45 minutes now. And hopefully, uh, you know, nobody's crying. Hopefully some people are feeling better. But it's been a long, hard road. And I could have, committed suicide. And I don't look at that as a cowardly act or the easy way out. But we all as people need to start realizing what we do, what we say, it affects other people. And it hurts. And after years and years and years of trauma and torment, pain and suffering, there is a point where somebody breaks, where they cannot take any more. And ask yourself, do you want to be someone who breaks that person or somebody who lifts them up when you go to bed at night do you want to be the person who made someone's life better or added to their problems and made it worse Uh, if you're somebody who has these thoughts and you don't feel like you have a good support system around you um, you find yourself isolating not want to get out of bed start with the suicide hotline. The number is 1-800-273-8255. Find somebody and talk to them. It's not easy, you know, me to sit here through this podcast and be like, well, I went to Shepherd Pratt, I started a business, I got better. No, it's not that easy. It's not, it's a lot of hard work, it's a lot of pain. You're gonna cry, you're gonna hurt, you're just still feel the same way you do inside, but you've gotta build yourself up in life to make things better. There's people there that'll help you, but ultimately, you're gonna have to be the one who makes the decision to change your perspective. There's too much life wasted on pain and suffering and sorrow. If it's that easy to feel those negative emotions, why can't it be just as easy to be happy and feel good and you're going to do that in helping other people and doing things for the right reason getting maybe cosplay is your outlet maybe singing is your outlet maybe you start a business that's why I've always said anybody who wants to get involved with CGN contact us let us know because hey it might do for you what it's done for me um, so really you know In closing, I just want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, This has been very personal and very hard for me to do. Once again, I spared a lot of the details. Um, Things would be much darker had I not. Uh, But also keeping in mind, I need to be fair to people who are involved in the situation directly and indirectly. um, Because I don't want them demonized. I don't want... um, there to be backlash I just want people to start thinking about other people more and realizing that sometimes even the person with the biggest smile is the person that has the most pains is in fighting off this fighting off the most demons uh, and I can't stress how important it is for you if you're feeling that way or have thoughts of suicide to get help to talk to somebody Force yourself to do it. Nobody wants to die, and nobody should ever be in the position where they've been beaten down so badly into the ground by life, society, that they turn to heroin or they turn to suicide as an option. Um, so, with that, I'm, I'm going to close up, and I hope this helps some people out there. Just hearing my little story of hell and relating it to Chester's, and you know, like I said, I at this point I owe it to Chester Bennington, my kids, Yen uh, Side, everybody here, to keep going and keep fighting, and no matter what happens, keep my head above water. Um, I hope this has helped you. I hope Chester Bennington's. No longer in pain, and watch it fly by as is resting in peace. And I'd like to just say thank you. Chester, this is this real. Watch the time go right out the window. Trying to hold on to it, didn't even know or wasted it all just to watch go. I kept everything inside, and even though I tried, it all fell apart. What it meant to me will eventually be a memory of a time I tried so hard. I've put my truck